0: Hello and welcome to The More, The Merrier with Donna G. I've got a packed show for you today. I've got two interviews from the Toronto Jewish Film Festival. The first up is Eli Gorn talking about Celia Dropkin, who wrote Yiddish erotic poetry at the turn of the 20th century. And then you'll hear from Tamash Wormser about a Black Jewish community in Uganda. And up first is my interview with soprano Nima, Bickersteff to talk about Scott Joplin's Trimonisha, which is being presented by T.O. Live, Luminato, and Volcano. And musically, I'm ending the show with Doña Donya, by Canadian soprano Denise Williams. Enjoy the show. This is Donna G. Joining me is Canadian soprano Nima Bickersteff, whom I first saw in the Nathaniel Dett Chorale many years ago. And as soon as I heard her voice, I knew she should have a career. And I say should because Canadian artists don't always get to follow the path that they want. So, Nima, welcome to The More, The Merrier with Donna G to discuss Trimonisha the opera that's coming up June 6th to the 17th. Welcome to CIUT. Thank you so much, Donna. So Nima, let's get started. You are the third Black soprano I've interviewed in my over 20-year history at CIUT. The mm-hmm. first was um, Misha Bruger gossman when she was just starting out um, at down at U of T. I recently interviewed Denise Williams, and she talked about, you know, her life in, you know, as a black Canadian opera singer, and now you. Uh, so Nima, let's go back to how you started singing, and uh, you're from Alberta. So I am. To, to preface that, because people think there aren't any black people in, in Alberta. <laughs> We're there you know, too. You, you know that. <laughs> you know that, right? <laughs> Must get
1: some surprise from some people. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Born and raised in Alberta. I call myself a prairie chick. Prairie um, chick. Yeah. <laughs> but, so uh, how did yeah. this
0: prairie chick uh, get into music?
1: So my parents put me in some some voice lessons, and it was mostly like sort of musical theater slash classical. I lived in in a tiny town at the time, a small town of 5,000 people. So um, I think maybe there was one other Black family <laughs> in the vicinity, but I just took to it and I loved it. And my voice was always a little bit bigger and more than the other kids my age.
2: Mm-hmm. And so
1: I just kept going, I kept going. I did the music festivals and competitions and I did well. And um, and so it just continued right up until I, I started university.
0: And when that finished, I thought, okay, I guess I'm doing this. <laughs> I'm going to back up a bit to that five thousand person town. Uh, what's it called? Olds, Olds, Alberta. O L D S. Yes. <laughs> yes. Sorry, for, sorry for the laughter, but the, the, <laughs> na- the, the name makes it sound small That's enough, right? Yeah. <laughs> And your parents are both from Sierra Leone. So how did you end up in Old, of all places? Well, my parents emigrated
1: from Sierra Leone in in 1969 um, with my brother, who at the time was three months old. oh,
0: stop Mm -hmm. there. (laughs) (laughs) It's like people now are asking, are there Black people in Alberta? And your family was there in 1969. Mm -hmm. Yes. Wow. Okay, yes. that's that's a story of its own. <laughs> oh yes.
1: I mean, you should just interview my brother next because his name's Bertrand Bickerstev and he has a book of poetry about black Alberta.
0: I'm on it. I'm gonna do that. <laughs> I'm gonna do that. <laughs> I'll tell him to be prepared for me to reach out.
1: Yeah, far far before 1969. Um, but yeah, they moved because um my dad, uh, he's an academic. He he got into U of A, University of Alberta, for educational psychology. It had exactly the thing that he wanted in all of the places that he applied and got into. Edmonton, Alberta, was the place that he wanted, <laughs> and so that's where they moved and and remained for for you know basically until now. So, um, wow. Yeah, uh,
0: a man from Sierra Leone wanting, you know, just praying to go to Edmonton in mm-hmm. Alberta. Exactly, a black man. Who would have thought uh, that's Exactly. Where it
2: is.
0: <laughs> so you finished um, university, and as I said, I heard you with the Nathaniel Dett Corral. Uh, how long mm-hmm. were you with the Corral? I was only with the Corral for about three years, and
1: that was probably around when I first moved to Toronto. And, um, and yeah, it was really great. This black classical um, choir was just exactly what I was looking for and without even knowing it, wanting to explore, cause I'm mm-hmm. a classical singer and I'm a, a black woman. And so I have always um, sort of wanted to reconcile these parts of myself
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, that seem to 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 be to be opposed to each other in society it's like black singing is something else but here I was doing just that and so yeah Nathaniel Detkrell was like a wonderful place to start in Toronto and And, yeah and and I was only there for three years because of course I started gigging and
0: (laughs) yeah and I should add doing black classical music and with a, a very low natural I'm sure when people saw you in the the corral, they were thinking, um, they might have thought, "Oh wow, you know, she doesn't have the traditional uh, hair pulled back, soprano look." Mm-hmm. Um, so all of that um, mm-hmm. is is different and inspirational as well. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's great. I don't often think of that. I, I don't. I'm just being me, and so yeah, I, my hair was natural for my whole adult life. And now I have locks that are like kind of long. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, yeah, I don't think about that, but yeah, when I go to sing there, what I look like, isn't uh, what's expected.
0: Exactly. Which often happens to, to black folks um, mm-hmm. in, in many places, you know, mm-hmm. when they're in spaces where they aren't, you know, traditionally located. Um, mm-hmm. So you started, as you said, gigging. It's uh, interesting to hear an opera singer say gigging. Um, <laughs> you know, you've you've sang in in Europe, in the states, and let's get back to uh, *Trimonisia* now, which is an American work by Scott Joplin, who you know received the Pulitzer Prize posthumously, written in 1911. But this version of Trimonisha is still about, you know, a free black woman, and there's still the value of education and the educator there, but this version is different that is going to be at um, Meridian Hall and tell me about this new version with the libretto by Leah Simone Bowen Mm -hmm. conducted by a Panamanian American um, Kalina Bauvel and both are black. Yes. 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 Yes.
1: (laughs) Um, The libretto, um, which is uh, the words to an opera. We use the word libretto. Scott Joplin wrote both his libretto and and all of the music, and so Leah Simone Bowen um, came in and, and created this beautiful adaptation of his original work that sort of just opens it up to our gaze in in our modern times, our how we look at how we see things um, from our perspective now. So. At that time, there's. I'm saying this as I, I'm. I'm about to say something, but you know, at the same time, nothing's changed or, or very little has changed. But um, uh, there was so much division between Black people. Like we were meant to um, fight amongst ourselves and um, uh, and not have progress and not move ahead. And we weren't. There was no belief in in our in us as a people, and so. Scott Joplin um, wrote a piece from our perspective that didn't include the white people. And so that, to me, is just huge and amazing.
0: Um, radical. Radical, you know, totally. Radical, when you're thinking, you know, 1911, not that long historically after slavery mm-hmm. ended in the United
1: States. Exactly. And, and that there is no, like, white savior coming in, this is our story that he he was writing, and he and it, it, the story takes place in post Reconstruction, so a little bit earlier than 1911, around the 1880s, and um, and actually the 1860s as well. And it's a time that he was alive, so he actually you know he has insight into it. But there were there was a community uh, on the plantation um, who you know probably now they own own their land or sharecroppers and um and there's fear of the people that live in the woods the black people that live in the woods who most likely were escaped slaves that chose to stay where they thought it was safe and um and had old ways which he called conjuring conjurers and so leah simone looked a little deeply more deeply into that um and decided you know like that's us being against ourselves. How can we come together, which, was, which is the message in Trimanecha, Tr- Tr- bringing a community together? We are one. We've been divided, but we are actually one. And, um, and so instead looked into the Maroons and um, these groups of people that um, survived in swamps or in forests or in the woods um to be free and separate from the slavery that was happening and um and so created a whole world
0: uh, Mm -hmm. it's a self-determining
1: uh community exactly and and so now in this adapted version trimanisha ends up in this community and learns you know she is as you said educated she's curious and she finds out that she might be of both communities, and she wants to bring them together, to be one community once again.
0: So tell me more about Trimanisha. What age is she? and um, how do you what's your backstory for her in terms of creating this role for yourself to, and making it your own?:
1: So Trimanisha is about 20 years old. And, and she's about to get married. And, um, and just has, uh, I'm not sure how much of the story to give. I, I mean, normally in opera, you do know it. So <laughs> she she finds out she's adopted, essentially, and at the age of 20, and has a crisis. And throughout the process for me, Mima, um, during all the development over the past seven years. Of this work that we're doing, I really connect to whatever projects that I'm doing personally. So I'm not the type of actor that wants to just put on a mask and pretend. I want to look into what I'm doing and see how it personally affects my life and connects to my life. And so for Tree Manisha, for a long time, um, as we were developing it, the idea of agency, a woman a Black woman having agency over her own life, that was something that really resonated with me and that I was working on personally in my life. And as we were developing the work that the, the arrangers and the um, writers were adapting to, to allow Manisha to have more agency. Um, in the original, all the men are always speaking. Everybody else has an aria and she's quite silent. And even though it's about her, She's she's quite silent. And and so as we developed it, she finds her voice and begins to use it. And um and so I I feel I really connect to that, this idea of finding my inner voice and and listening to it and trusting it, despite kind of what the world might um have to say.
0: Now in this version, um in the original version, uh Tremanesha is is kidnapped in this version, is she also kidnapped? No. So in this version, she
1: runs away. Okay. In search of something, uh, in search of information. And, um, and so yes, rather than being kidnapped by the people that live in the woods, she runs away and runs into someone from the woods that she knows. And he takes her to his people so that she can learn so that she can find out about her mother, her birth mother, and we're she might have come from.
0: I don't think with um, with opera you can give too much away because you're there to see um, because people in the past would have been familiar with with these stories that traditionally happened in in, in European opera. So I think it's okay to talk about plot. Um, Here, especially on my show, where I'm encouraging people to step out of their comfort zone and try something new, Mm -hmm. so I think uh, the more they know of the story going in, the more they can be relaxed and uh, focus on understanding understanding the singing because Mm -hmm. they these are rhythms that they may not be used to and um, words pronounced musically which is not the way you say them when you're speaking right yes everything's put to music and all uh, is
1: put to music correct
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so is this a sung through opera is there any dialogue at all with this new version uh it's sung through
1: it's totally sung through i mean any speaking you hear is just ad-libbing um to to add to sort of the texture of the piece um the special thing about this opera is that Joplin, he wrote an American opera when people weren't interested in having a Black man write an American opera. So the sound isn't as far away as, you know, some of the European traditional operas that people might know Um he, okay. It was okay. written in English. It wasn't written in another language and then translated. Um, so th- you might hear some of the ragtime rhythms in there. Um, and then on top of it, our production um, brought to in, in the bringing together of, um, uh, of of the of different black cultures that that is a theme in the show. We we did that as well with the music. So we have singers that aren't classical singers. One of the main characters who is the leader of the Maroons, the people that live in the woods, her name is Sate, and she is like a soul rock singer. And that's how she's singing. So she's not trying to sound like me, (laughs) who is classically trained. She is sounding like her full beauty and, um, and so we have like different sounds, different black sounds coming through. Oh,
0: that's fantastic.
1: Uh, mm-hmm. And so when we go into the woods, the sound shifts. Yes, we still have the orchestra. Um, you'd mentioned Kalina Bovell, who is, you know, gonna, I, I don't even know how many black women we've seen conducting, but she's gonna be on the stage with the orchestra on the stage, all black orchestra on the stage. For us to, you know, have in full view, and um, and so we've got traditional uh, cl- European instruments, but also we've got um, West African percussion. We've got a kora, which is um, sort of like a West African harp sound, um, and 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 the, so the sound shifts when we go into the woods. And the leader of these people has a completely different sound than, than the leader of, of who we're calling the freedmen, the people that live on the plantation. Um, okay. And so there was a lot of musical arrangement happening there that that is not Joplin or the, it's Joplin inspired, but moves a lot further away from um, the usual rag sound. I think he
0: would be so excited about this.
1: <laughs> I think so. I really because he was
0: Because he was writing something American. And this is the sounds very, well, let's say North American since it's premiering in Canada, but mm-hmm. um, the sound reflective of, you know, the, uh, the black experience um, coming out of a US uh, that's different than it was at his time. So Mm -hmm. I think you'd be impressed with this performance because it's pushing and it's innovative. And Mm -hmm. uh, he he was a composer, so he loved music. So I think he would have been very excited. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. What
1: he was doing was something new too. Yeah, exactly. And his music just like, he inspired like so much black American music that came after. And, and so the uh, arrangers have sort of put what he, what he inspired back into this show.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yes. Fantastic. Nima, thank you so much for joining me. I know your time is precious uh, with this production Uh, set up seven years working on something and now Mm -hmm. it's, you can, you know, see the, the grand opening happening and, Mm -hmm. you know, just uh, being able to, Working on something is harder than, than actually finally just everything coming together and saying, ah, here it is. <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> it's, it's been big, it's been huge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The preparation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, thank you for taking the time out to mm. speak with me today. Yeah. And one correction that I should make is that it's presented by TO Live, but it's happening at the St. Lawrence Center for the Arts in the Blumenthal mm-hmm. Theater not mm-hmm. uh, Meridian Hall as I'm as I said That's, previously. Yes, yeah, yeah
1: St. Lawrence <laughs> Center <laughs> for Luminato Festival. Yeah. <laughs> right.
0: For Luminato well, thank Festival. Thank you so much. Yes. Okay, it's my pleasure. <laughs> for more information about Trimonisha, you can go to tolive.com, tolive.com, and it is a presentation of Luminato, tolive, and Volcano. Previews are June 6th to the 8th, and the official opening night is June the 10th. Dress to Impress, Black Carpet at 7, Show at 8, and Post-Show Discussion after the performance. Again, tolive.com and Scott Joplin's Treemonisha runs until June the 17th. After the station identification, I'll be running two back-to-back interviews, both featuring films from the Toronto Jewish Film Festival. My first interview is with Eli Gorn, and that film is called Burning Off the Page. It is about the extraordinary life of Celia Dropkin, who wrote Yiddish erotic poetry. And that film screens in person June the 5th. At 7:30 at Innes Town Hall on the U of T campus. It's also screened online June 8th to 9th. The next film is called Shalom Puti, and the director is Tamash Wormser, and he is my guest to talk about that film, which looks at the abba Udaya, a small Black Jewish community in Uganda and their process of trying to achieve official conversion recognition from Israel. That film screens in person June 8th, 6 p.m. in his town hall. The online screening of Shalom Puti happens on June the 11th to 12th. CIUT 89.5 FM, the
1: sound of your city. Stream us anytime at
2: www.ciut.fm.
0: You're listening to The More, The Merrier with Donna G on CIUT 89.5 FM. And joining me for the first time here on the show is director Eli Gorn to talk about Burning Off the Page. It is a documentary about the life of a Yiddish poet, writer Celia Dropkin. Eli,
3: welcome. Thank you, Donna, for having me.
0: I'm so excited, Eli. How did you find out about Celia?
3: Um, A young woman out of Montreal approached me um, to do this film. She was uh, a big fan of Celia's and she didn't have, I had experience in filmmaking, she didn't. So she approached me and wanted to, wanted to uh, make the film to, this film together about Celia. You know, she's been overwhelmed by, by her for many years as are many other people. That uh, She has this strong sort of devotee following um, based on just how great her poetry was. She became a, the, the producer of the film and her name is Bracha Feldman. She told me all about Celia, and it was just all very fascinating. I'm not so much into poetry, but you know, I recognized that it was it was really powerful stuff, uh, particularly for women. But more importantly, her her life story was remarkable, and there were there were so many. Um, Nuances and, and uh, storylines um, uh, that were that were so so compelling and so rich, and it, it was a, it was just another time and another era, and uh, it literally her story uh, aside from burning off the page, it could be it could be made into a movie, all the details of her of her life story. So it, it seemed obvious that you know it would it would make uh, make a, a good documentary. And uh, I think the thing that sold me on it, uh, above all, was every time I would mention to people um, that I'm doing this story on an, on an erotic Yiddish poet, people would start laughing. And I, I found that very, very, uh, very amusing. It, it was like people find it quirky because they don't associate eroticism and Yiddish in, in, in together in the same, in the same, in the same breath. So uh, that was intriguing to me um, that there was this story that you know people just didn't know about. It was just like um, you, you know Yiddish has this uh, this um, you know reputation for being this sort of nostalgic, folksy uh, you know language and culture, and nobody understood how, how really d- deep and, and and rich it it, uh, it is. So, uh, you know, we, we see it through the lens of uh, Fiddler on the Roof, usually. Um, people just don't know how, how, how deep the, the, the culture uh, became and the, and the language became. So uh, that was it. I, it, it was, uh, and, and then her, her stuff was, again, her poetry was, you know, to, to anybody, it's just very compelling. I'm sure, I'm sure you, you noticed that and you appreciated that, Donna. What did you think?
0: I thought she was fantastic. I'm just so thrilled that you made this film so that her name will resonate more um not only with the Jewish community, uh Yiddish community, but, but with the world and uh and and especially with women. Some of the translations of her poems, the visuals of her poetry and the juxtapositions. Of things that she writes about, you know, like motherhood and the uh, the Inquisition uh, in 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 one and and knives and the circus and what the knives mean and you know, and so that's her poetry, and then you get her as well, you know, this woman who was in love with this poet. For so long, and uh, this film is fa- absolutely fascinating. Celia is fascinating. I'm in love with her. Her eyes and her eyebrows, by the way.
3: <laughs> I'm delighted, Donna. She was she was born in Russia at the in the late 1800s. She went to a, 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 something called a gymnasium. It was a, a a school for advanced advanced learning. So she studied in Russian. She actually didn't. Didn't she, she heard Yiddish in her home, but she didn't really speak it. She only learned Yiddish later when she arrived in New York, is, uh, uh, curiously enough. Uh, so she fell in with uh, this movement. After she finished school, she fell in with this movement of, um, of Hebrew writers and fell in love with um, this uh, novelist who became famous uh, as one of the one of the preeminent no- novelists of of early Hebrew literature it's an unrequited love uri nisan Ganesan, even his name is kind of exotic and uh, so he's not really interested in her he's he's a he's a don juan he he plays around with with many many women's emotions uh, she, they they became friends at the very least I mean, she would have wanted more, but, but he, he wouldn't give it to her. So they, they corresponded. They had, they had much many correspondences back and forth, and she would send him poems. He takes one of her poems and, and publishes it in, in a novel that became famous in Israel. So he actually literally stole one of her poems. And the poem became actually famous. It was, it was recited by people in the streets of Israel. At the time, she, she never really minded that he stole her poem. But this book was written in in Hebrew, and she didn't actually read Hebrew. So she only read the tr- a translation at the end of her life and then sort of got pissed off at K- and and wouldn't forgive him
0: i don 't blame her at all. he was a rat, as far as i 'm concerned. I know she loved him, but he was a rat.
3: The times were different though it 's uh, not that i 'm defending him I, I think he uh, he you know he was uh, a, a, like many artists sort of are narcissistic and there 's no defense
0: She was almost obsessed with him
3: more than almost she was completely yeah. obsessed and arguably that shaped her her you know the 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 transgressive poetry. Uh, you know, that she wrote, that very powerful stuff. It was that relationship, that longing that is reflected a lot in the poetry. Here's a key part of the story as well. Close to the end of her life, she was approached by, because Ganesan became famous in Israel, people wanted to know about him. Somebody found out about her and her relationship with him, and they approached her to write her memories down. What were your memories of Ganesan? Please let me know and uh, we will publish something in the the papers in Israel. She wrote for uh, for a a good five to 10 years, she compiled all these memories of Ganesan, which never got published. So they ended up in an archive in Israel, in Hebrew, and what were published in Hebrew, but nobody knew about them. We found them in this archive and had them translated to English. And we took excerpts and the the writing is is just stunning it really um portrays that those feelings and her thoughts and feelings around Ganesan the good the bad and the ugly and selected passages which we felt would portray that that love affair that she had with Ganesan we were really super lucky to get an actor to actually speak these words these these authentic words of, of, of Celia's that brings us to Gabrielle Rose who is one of Canada's preeminent actors? She just was overwhelming um, in her performance and um and captured something that i i I don't think we could ever she was just sensational as you well know tell tell me your thoughts donna
0: gabrielle rose you may not know the name but trust me audience you know her face um, once you see it seeing her you, you you see the celia the woman and the emotion when she talks about you know her life and the romance and you know the expression on her face is 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 just beautiful Uh, and sad uh, to watch. So you see that part of it. Normally I don't like reenactments, but Gabrielle does a wonderful job as Celia. The other aspect I want to talk about is the use of animation. Who is your animator and why did you decide to include animation
3: in this film? Uh, Well, because that's, that was probably the best way we could interpret her poetry. And and I think it worked out. It worked out really well. Um, The animator, is is a is a really talented guy out of israel i i had seen a bunch of films made by another filmmaker in israel a really really good filmmaker and who included this animator's work in his films and i thought the style was uh, was fabulous i approached this animator in israel his name is yaron shin and together we worked for probably two years animating these poems we selected the poems that were the most impactful and he has a he has a very particular style of animation. It's called rotoscoping i didn't even know much about it and still i'm a little bit in the dark about it but it's 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 actors he actually etches and i apologize for not knowing the process but he takes live actors and he 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 does um action their their action around the poetry, the movements in the poetry, and then he animates them somehow. So it's just this very artistic process. It turned out really well. We think so. Um,
0: it, it, it enhances it, the poetry, and also you know the way the you use the uh, the words, the translations, you know, popping off the screen. And I like the fact that they're in in red and you know a lot of the animation animated figures are you know in in white sketches and the movement is is fantastic so kudos to Yaron Shin and your work with him in in getting this uh in getting us to engage more even more with the poetry you also Eli had a roster of people who could talk about Celia most importantly uh her family imagine finding out that your great grandmother or your grandmother wrote erotic poetry <laughs> and you're yeah. okay with it
3: i'm very happy you mentioned that donna because the family story is is an interesting one as well because celia cast this shadow over the family to this day she they understood how significant she was as an artist and as a poet and uh, they they keep her memory and her her legacy alive and they, they're just v- very interesting characters she she spawned you know her and her husband Shmaya Sam you know spawned this 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 very influential and interesting family of Activists and intellectuals and academics, and uh, it, it's just a kind of remarkable story. So, th- three or four of them are in the film talking about their feelings about Celia and many of them are were too young sort of to remember her but Celia it sort of always had to remain an artist so towards the end she stopped writing poetry um towards the end of her life but picked up painting so she always had to remain an artist that above all so she she at the end of her life she she painted actually i think she had over 100 canvases which ended up being distributed in in the, to the family. She lives on through these paintings, and I, I, I became friendly with a um, with the the grandson and who was in the who was in uh, the film, and his name is Ken Levinson, and uh, we actually became close friends, and and uh, he he is an, he's an academic in New York, and he wrote a book. Uh, actually about his grandmother and used his grandmother as, as a muse. So, you know, that was all fascinating. So we got to un- understand her on, uh, on many other levels as well. Um, and another interesting aspect to her was that she, because, because she was so, um, transgressive and so out of the norm she she ended up appealing very much to to uh, a gay community it's it's and of which and and ken is actually gay and uh and she, and appreciated her her work on that on that transgressive level so um it, it's just, it was all it's all just fascinating. Her life, her, you know, she, her influence, her life, and her influence on so many people. It's just profound. You know, I she, wish, she. I
0: she wish she was as famous as Virginia Woolf in Ah. terms in terms of writing about the domestic and um, women's lives. And and I say that because even people who have never read Virginia Woolf know the name Virginia Woolf. So I'm saying Mm -hmm. that I wish she was as known as Virginia Woolf. She's writing out the oppressed from her point of view as herself, but she's not writing about, you know, the labor unions and the things that they think that she should be writing about. And, you know, how dare she write about this as a woman? And they're, they're not allowing her her freedom. And the domestic sphere is just as important as the public sphere. And uh that's why mm-hmm. I that's why I loved her. And I can see why she appeals to um anybody who is sort quote unquote outside the norm. You know, somebody who's saying, I'm not like the others. I, I am me. That's why I love Celia so much. Well, she's a fantastic her,
3: fantastic writer oh she was and it's it's i think it's important to, to to understand that this this stuff is so modern it's like universal modern and her her poetry feels like it could be written today yes so that's another that's a very important uh feature and factor of her work um and how how uh, visceral it, it it is to to so many uh, women. You know, it's just particularly women. It's interesting, Domenic. You mentioned what you just mentioned about Virginia Woolf. It's because I often wonder. Um, you know, w- what if this stuff was published in in English? Like the, the reason why you haven't heard of her is so it's, it's just obvious. It's like you just wouldn't mm-hmm. have heard of it. a y- Yiddish poet is just not going to get get any notoriety. But if like h- how would her work compare um it, it like would she have received attention if if she was published in english in, in those days and i i think unquestionably the answer is yes oh of course she, her her stuff was just so raw and so tough to take it was d- direct and personal and
0: now you mentioned people laughed when you said erotic and yiddish how was it getting funding for this film
3: film was funded entirely in the in the vancouver jewish community i just managed to sell the story to a bunch of members of this community who care about interesting stories and discovery of something that was a, a very uh, important sh- sort of Jewish story. And they recognized that and they actually supported it. Not entirely, but they actually, most of the money came f- came from there. So it was all privately, privately funded, which was a blessing for us. Uh, this industry is a very difficult one.
0: This one's going to have legs because she intersects so many different areas, you know, women, you know, mothers, poetry lovers and the erotic lovers and just her as a person is so formidable i think we're going to hear definitely more about celia dropkin and eli thank you so much and thank you to those donors for supporting burning off the page
3: i'm i'm delighted you liked it thank you so much for the opportunity to actually have this that's great
0: you're welcome curated by the people for the people ciut 89.5 fm is the sound of your city You're listening to CIUT 89.5 FM. This is Donna G., The More, The Merrier. My guest is Tamash Wormser, and he's here to talk about his latest documentary, Shalom Puti, which is screening at the Toronto Jewish Film Festival in person on June the 8th and online from June the 11th to the 12th. Tamash, welcome to CIUT. Welcome to The More, The Merrier.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: Tamash, I had so many conflicting feelings watching uh, Shalom Puti, which is about this small African Jewish settlement in Uganda. Did you also have conflicted feelings as well?
2: Yes, of course. I mean, from the beginning, it was a very uh, it was a remarkable story that I, I happened to come up on. Um, while I was doing my previous um, film, uh, "The Wandering Muse," that um, that was examining what is Jewish identity through the music of the diaspora, and um, and while I was there uh, at this village, um, a group of um, Israeli rabbis arrived, and uh, and I realized that there is another film happening here <laughs> right in front of me that is so complex. So yeah, of course I I I think it, it was meant to be uh somewhat disturbing film, um to to open dialogues and, and to see how people do good things for bad reasons and uh, bad things for good reasons. I I and I was an outsider. In in both groups as well.
0: Can you explain outsider in what sense to the audience?
2: I'm I am Jewish. I have a very strong Jewish identity, but I'm not religious. I'm I'm not following any rules, um, and um, I just I'm an atheist. And so were my my parents so are my parents and my grandparents but you know nevertheless they had to go through the Holocaust so it was definitely a very strong uh identity but but that, for them that really didn't mean much I mean they accepted me as a Jew but like I was definitely an outsider because of this and i was an outsider from the rabbi's uh, point of view as well because you know, we represent very different politics and uh, very different understandings yet uh, there was a you know a mutual trust uh, that uh, developed
0: yes that's the issue um that's the huge word that was in the back of my mind is is trust i am watching this film through the gaze of a Black woman um, and colonization is a part of my history. And colonization also not only in terms of, you know, the middle passage, but also of uh, religion and primarily Christianity. So here we are, two outsiders watching this film about um, Africans. For you being you know pale skinned for me being dark skinned and seeing um outsiders go into africa i waffle between do i trust them do i not trust them
2: it was it was very much my experience in africa to to witness how um, the religion religious colonialism happened um so much that they, they 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 lost their own traditions and their own rituals and and water and, and there is a very beautiful i well, i think very beautiful and symbolic scene in the film where they are talking about taking out a tree by the roots because uh because some people were worshipping their their ancestors under that uh, tree and um and that's not acceptable um so so it just it just shows that it you know they were really they really lost their own uh, religion yet they are so spiritual they are more spiritual jews than than the jews are you know than most jews are
0: right Uh, that that tree was so symbolic to me and it pained me to see the removal of that of their of their culture of their roots in a sense, but also um, the way they practice Judaism in terms of incorporating their dances in their orthodoxy was also. I thought, they, well, they still get to keep that part, and I'm. It's a fascinating film, and for you to actually be there and witness, there must have been. I mean, besides the tree, there must have been days where. You're thinking, I can't believe what I'm seeing. And what am I seeing?
2: Well, you know, when I arrived there, it was uh, just just like half an hour before Shabbat was starting. Like I had no idea where, I, you know. So I arrived in this village where there's no electricity. Uh, there's no, no water, no running water. Like uh, women, typically women have to carry the water on their head to the village, Um, they they live in extreme poverty, what I thought poverty was. But on the other hand, I I saw such a a wealth and richness that was uh, like really touching, you know, because I never witnessed that. It was like an incredible solidarity that if somebody needed help, they were all there. And yeah, I was very touched by that. And and they, were, they accepted me because I stayed in, in the village like um, with them for the first uh, few days. I mean, you know, after a while I needed to plug my batteries and like I developed a really good and trusting relationship. With the rabbis, it was much more difficult because they didn't uh, trust me at first. The, I'm talking about the Israeli rabbis. So I had to really gain their trust and that took a couple of years you know that it's yeah.
0: interesting that the uh that the Ugandans trusted you but the rabbis didn't so yeah. this issue of trust goes back and forth and when I saw the American rabbis I was like Shlomo Riskin what is Shlomo Riskin uh Rabbi Shlomo Riskin doing in Uganda doing in this small village and I thought okay here again come outsiders, you know, going in. And I mean, the whole reason they're Jewish in the first place is because their leader was betrayed by the British. It's like he won some territory for the British and they thought he would be king and then he wasn't king. And then he, you know, he said, uh, he looked through the Bible and said, okay, we're Jewish. So all of this is happening. Um, what was your relationship with uh, with the American uh, rabbis did they trust you initially
2: um, no no so what but, but they are they are um like all these i i call them israeli rabbis because in fact they are coming from uh from the settlements um and they they are all anglophone uh either australians americans or canadians um and um and they live in one community, in Efrat. They are much more inclusive than most of Israeli society, I would say. Initially, as I I mentioned, they stopped. uh, Like I, I agreed with one of the rabbis that I can film, and then when they showed up and they saw me, they told me that I cannot film. And then I had to sort of make my way back, like I presented... Uh, my film in Israel, my previous film, and then I met them and i you know they accepted me at the end and then you know at the end, we had a pretty good relationship with uh, with all of them I mean we you know we are very different, we think very different about just about everything, but there was like a mutual respect that was uh, developed somehow
0: mm-hmm. I was surprised that they admitted to the racism um, as to the reason behind why um, some of the Africans couldn't go to Israel um, to study why they had so many problems with the visa and the acceptance. And here you have this devout village wanting to learn from Israel and coming up um, against the roadblocks. I was very surprised that um, the rabbis admitted. You know, let's face it; it's it's racism. Why they have to go yeah. through so much trouble with the visas? Did yes. that yes. Did that surprise you that they actually said that? Well, on you camera? know, the
2: you know the film is also about the different degrees of racism. You know, like racism is just not like one one tone, right? You know, for me, like you know, like I'm, I'm not <clears throat> I'm not a believer. I don't believe in God, but. Like, for me, what it means to be Jewish is to be anti-racist. I mean, it's, uh, you know, to be on the side of the oppressed. That is, you know. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's very hard to comprehend that how can people call themselves Jewish and be racist? Like, I just think, you know, for me, it's very hard. Like, it doesn't really not my interpretation. But my films always deal with these kind of things, that that my interpretation is this, your interpretation is the opposite. And, you know, we can be both right, I guess. But, you know, that complexity, uh, like bringing out those, those different truths about one thing creates this, uh, this um, reality somehow, you know.
0: You phrased it very well bringing out these different truths that's what I see in your film which is why I had so many mixed emotions um, watching it I like the fact that you chose not to have a narrator and we're just observing what's going on with the people and the different community I wonder um, it took seven years to to develop this film to to capture these these moments and um were there any times where you thought i don't think this is going where it's where i want it to go
2: um, no i i didn't i basically i in 7 years i went uh, 5 times and each time i would uh, stay for like 3 weeks usually and um i um i was just you know, just amazed. You know, like I was like amazed about about the situation, like how 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 things were developing, and um, I would, you know, it, I just had a complete fascination, even though things were not going at all. Like originally, the project was that I would follow them to Israel. Like we thought that after them, after the the official conversion, which is really not a conversion is more like a recognition in reality because these people have been Jews for a hundred years, like you know. So and their names are Moshe and uh, Abraham and uh, so on. Um, So so they are very much Jewish. But like after this um, this uh, conversion, I thought that they would be accepted. Of course, they were not. So so the film went to a different direction than I thought it would. But um, but you never know what uh, will end up happening, right?
0: Yeah. Have the villagers seen your film?
2: No, they haven't. They have seen my previous film. And that just that was a fantastic experience because they they don't have electricity and they they you know like these people they, you know they don't watch TV. Um they they get together and they sing and they dance and like you know like they and it's just beautiful um how like how they can sing like pitch perfect. But I, I had to rent like a generator and uh, and uh um, we had to bring some gas, and and we projected my previous film like that, and I realized that they have never seen a film in their life. You know, like this was the first film they they have ever seen, and uh, <laughs> so it was quite special. And at the at the end, they wanted to watch it again. So you know, uh, so we did. It was a funny experience, but but this film they haven't seen. And I'm, I really hope to go there and present it uh, um, this year. I but the rabbis haven't seen it either, because oddly enough, nobody in Israel has uh, chosen the film. Um, although I believe it's very much about Israel, but, um, but no festival or, or uh, TV were interested so far. Um mm. So so the, so yeah, none of the protagonists have seen the film.
0: Interesting, uh,
2: but it has been shown like in ten countries, and you know it's it's been going around.
0: Th- that the fact that they haven't recognized the film by screening it at any of their festivals also adds to your to your film and the story that you're trying to tell, Tomas. There's just so many levels to the film that you have made, and I can't imagine what it is like to to be you and be surrounded by so many contradictions all at the same time from moment to moment is this the most bewildering documentary you've ever made?
2: Well, I I, I cannot really judge that. It's a very different uh, film that I've ever made. Uh, but I can say that about uh, quite a few of my films. This, <laughs> this is very different, and it's it's sort of I I just uh, sort of fell into this uh, whole uh, uh, fascinating story that, and I I just love the fact that there are all these different layers, right? I yes, mean, you know, like it's seemingly the white people are coming uh, to save uh, the the black people, but sort of the opposite is happening too, right? You know, like I I was fascinated by by the richness of this um, this film that I I find is actually it's more of a typical African story than a typical Jewish story. This is very unusual for for Jews, but very typical for Africans. But it was also beautiful to see um, how, like over these seven years, the role of the women have drastically changed. And and I was quite excited to portray that as well, because, you know, first time I arrived in the village, um, um, just before Shabbat, as I told you, the, the first woman who came to greet me, like people came to greet me, and the first woman who came to me took my hand and kneeled down. And I didn't know why she kneeled down, so I kneeled down as well. And like everybody started laughing that, you know, you're not supposed to kneel down, it's only the women. And I was like, well, if she kneels down, I kneeled down. So, so, and then from that, like uh, I got the trust of the women as well, you know? And uh, and I I did interview them through an interpreter because many of them didn't speak English, and then you mm-hmm. know they, they their their own issues, and some of those issues are pretty serious. And you know the women are very in a very difficult situation, um, but in that community and in general in Africa, I mean it's uh, you know it's not easy. It
0: made me happy to see. You. That one woman, I've forgotten her name, but the fact that she was now one of the leaders and improving things, not only for the women, but for the village um, in terms of what she was was doing in the planting and everything that uh, that she was doing. Uh, Tamash. I could talk to you forever about this film and we still would have more to talk about <laughs> in the next lifetime. Um, so thank you so much for for making this documentary. thanking you for making a film that is non-judgmental that just presents um, the facts as they are. I really appreciate that.
2: Thank you so much and thank you for this uh, interview. It's been great pleasure.
1: Reg. Heuch in Himmel flieht das Schwelbe, dreht sich, dreht sich in und Krieg. Lacht der Wind in Kohl,